I think it would be good to have like a balloon corner, like a segment of the podcast that we can kind of return to this week in balloon corner, you know, and where we can see like well, the, the latest, the latest uh, headlines regarding balloons, not just spy balloons, by the way. Right. All types of balloons. All types of balloons. There's a lot of the mini balloons. Though. There's a lot of diversity in balloons. We could get like some special theme music that like just hits on uh, that captures balloon, that balloon. balloon song. Balloon song, like. Hi everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. What's going on, Professor Kaplow? I hope you're doing well. Hope everybody's fine. And and we're recording this actually. The the listeners should know on Saturday. Uh, this is a, a normally we do this during the week, but we're on Saturday, and tomorrow is Super Bowl Sunday. You know what else is coming up? It's not just Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, Valentine's Day is right around the corner uh, on on Tuesday. It is. It is. Are you a big Valentine's Day guy? N- no, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I mean, how about you? Like, are you? Uh, uh, do you have a big big plans? No. So so. Uh, I the hit my history of Valentine's Day goes way back. I I for a long time was under the impression. And I think this came from my father, who who thought that Valentine's Day was this like made up holiday for like the Hallmark company, sure. you know, and they got the, the cahoots with the the rose makers and stuff like that, and basically just like made up this thing. And then in college, I was taking like a, a sort of anthropology class, and one of the uh, topics was on sort of like rituals and things like that, and Valentine's. Uh, it came up as like one of the like examples of this is actually like based in something real. And I can't remember any of the details, but like since then I've actually thought to myself like, Oh, okay. Like this is like a real thing. This isn't me. I mean, it's, it's been embellished over time and more commercialized and, you know, capitalism and all that, but it actually does have roots that are kind of important. I don't remember those roots are, but so that since then I've tried to celebrate kind of in some way, even though I don't really know what I'm celebrating. The problem with Valentine's day. And I find it similar to sort of like new year's Eve. It's it's like amateur hour at like, you know, restaurants and stuff like that. Oh, you can't go to a rest. No, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. And so then but it's but then it's often like just like the middle of the week. It's like this. It's it's like a Tuesday. Right. You know, and so like I don't I, it's it's a holiday that that can be any day of the week. And it's not like always on a weekend. And so for that reason, like oftentimes a Tuesday is kind of like I mean, we do Taco Tuesday in my house. So I don't know. Maybe we'll do like a Valentine's Day inspired Taco Tuesday. But I don't know what to, I don't know what to do on Valentine's Day unless it happens to be on a weekend, and then you don't want to go to a restaurant and, and do a big night out because everybody in the else is doing that. You know, my big plan for Valentine's Day is spending hours and hours helping my kids create thousands of individual Valentines for their various oh, classrooms. I, I don't participate in like, that. They're on their it's, own. It's insane. Like it, the, the, what they're asking of the these children, you know, it's either you're gonna like buy this box of generic Valentines and then individually label them or you make them. But it's like, and you have to include even the, even the people you hate in the, in the Valentine's giving. I I feel like that's been an improvement. I mean, I remember in our day, you would go around (laughs) and like give Valentine's to various (laughs) people and like skip, (laughs) you know, and it'd be like a contest. Like how many did you get? And like, I feel like we've, we've, we've progressed since then. That's one of these cruel time. (laughs) Yeah. Tough time to be a kid. Yeah. High school in the the early nineties. Not so, but anyway, so like, I just kind of feel like you, you are in a better, we're in a better position vis-a-vis the the kids for Valentine's day, but we've made no improvements for the adult side. That's, that's my, well, I have two suggestions for, uh, you or for our listeners who are okay. looking for Valentine's Day options. So yeah. um, the perfect gift, really, for Valentine's Day 
is um, a book by one of your favorite podcasters. Um, oh, and if, I like and that. if those are unavailable, then oh, they're available. Well, if, if your favorite podcasters books are unavailable, then there's always us, your cheap talk hosts. <laughs> I see what you did there. I'll just say that my new book, Signing Away the, the Signing Away the Bomb, The Surprising Success of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Regime, is available at uh, any bookseller that you can find at Amazon.com. Um, oh, and it is. Let me pull this up right now. Yes, it is. There we go. They have seven copies and st- six copies. That and what's amazing is it's only a hundred and ten dollars. <laughs> but but see, the best thing about this gift for your for your loved ones or someone who you feel like you have to get a Valentine's gift for but don't really like is that you know you don't want them actually to read it. What you want is them for them to know this is like a very expensive book. Um, and I think that that sends the message. <laughs> I, I can I can I can affirm that it's a very expensive book. What what floors me, Professor Kaplan, and bringing up your Amazon.com page. So you can buy your book new for one hundred and ten dollars. You can buy it used for one hundred and forty dollars. Now, how is it used? Like, how does it even exist yet? Like, is it out there in the in the in the I'm world? I'm flooding like, the market with used used books. Because but I, then they have they have because Marcus they sent me are, some free books and I immediately resold them. We sold um, them. Yeah. And then, well, now, but now they have 13 Amazon affiliated sellers who are trying to undercut Amazon and are offering the book new at $105. Nice. All right. This is very complicated. It's a deal. I, I think everyone should jump on this at $105. This is this is a great bargain. And if you're more of a... Um, I'm going to get 10 copies right now. More of a psychological approaches to international relations kind of guy. I'll just recommend an excellent book that I um, once purchased and read some of, Face to Face Diplomacy by the esteemed Marcus Holmes, which is also available on the internet near you. Um, and it's also much cheaper. And than it's much, much cheaper, as as you would guess, right? As you would expect. Um, so uh, both of those books makes, make excellent Valentine's gifts for people you like or dislike. Uh, but also, you know, another option that's out there is a uh, hot air balloon ride. Have you, ever, have you ever been on a romantic hot air balloon ride, my friend? I don't think I have. I don't think I've ever gone up in anything that didn't have some type of engine. Yeah. Well, that seems like reasonable, a reasonable policy. That's my rule. That's my rule. Yeah. I need an engine. Yeah. I used to have, a, I used to have a rule that it had to have wings, but then I went up in a helicopter once and that was kind of cool, but it's a little, it's a little creepy. You're like kind of not sure. Well, yeah. Helicopters are scary. I, I, uh, I well, find... if you have a problem up there, there's not a yeah. whole lot you can do. <laughs> yeah. There's no fallback. <laughs> you know, at least, at least the wings give you a little time to kind of figure out what your plan is. But I, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in a balloon. So a hot air balloon ride, of course, is a Valentine's classic, right? It's it's romantic. And there's mm-hmm. actually uh, several places you can book a hot air balloon charter um, right near our uh, beloved hometown of Williamsburg, Virginia. But the thing is, is since we've been shooting down these things recently and we are in a sort of military <laughs> area, is this, is this the I time? would be a little nervous. Right. <laughs> now, it's going to have a big heart on it and it's going to have it's going to be obvious, you would think. But I, I would just be a little weary. Well, the other problem is it's going to be freezing. Like, can you imagine? It's like <laughs> yes. how cold it's going to be up there. It's, it's chilly down here. It's chilly up down there. here. It's going to be. It's going to be. Really I mean, cold. I don't know how science works exactly, but my understanding is, as you go up, things tend to get chillier. Well, I was reminded of uh, of hot air ballooning because the big news this week in international relations. I like this segue. This is excellent. thank you. I worked hard on this. Is uh, the Chinese spy balloon that uh, made its way over the United States over several fun filled days. Um, of uh, of spy balloon punditry, and we were all treated to people who know nothing about spy balloons 
sharing their views on spy balloons. And I thought everybody became a spy balloon expert on Twitter overnight. It was amazing. Right. Well, and I thought, you know, who else knows nothing about spy balloons? Marcus Holmes. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, you got that right. Yeah. So I well, thought that we won't could... prevent me from talking about exactly, it. Exactly. Right. Why should it? Why should it? Right. So exactly. uh, I thought we could maybe have a little discussion today about the um, the China spy balloon situation. I would um, like that. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe just a little background. to, to So we're all kind of on the same page. I don't know if everyone's following the spy balloon story as closely as I am. I'm riveted. Um, but you know, maybe yeah, I'm, not, sli- I'm slightly less riveted than you are, but I, I find it exciting. Maybe not everyone is. So the U S detected right. this, uh, quite large balloon as it kind of flew over Alaska across Montana and the rest of the United States. And this became kind of a big political story in the United States because many politicians were very critical of the Biden administration for allowing uh, such a balloon to overfly the United States. Now this is a fairly large balloon. This is not, um, so this is, what did they say? The the Pentagon said it's like three bus lengths long was the way they Something described it. Something along those it. lines. Yeah. And it was at a fairly high altitude, like 50,000, 60,000 feet, something like that. You know, a little, little above where you would expect like commercial uh, aircraft to be. Yep. But, uh, you know, not by any means, not in space. Right. Right. And so uh, this thing was going over, uh, over the U.S., created kind of a political firestorm around uh, the U.S. decision not to shoot it down right away. The Pentagon um, said that there was some risk that debris from the balloon, if it were shot down, could injure someone on the ground. Um, And so that was one reason not to do that. And they also spoke about how there was some intelligence benefit to allowing the balloon to transit the United States so that we could get a nice close look at it as it mm-hmm. kind of made its way. You know, it's a balloon. It's not going super fast. So as we made... It's not going to like dart out of here unless it's some type of... It's not... It's like a UFO or something and it's going to go like very quickly away. Yeah. So we could take a nice close look um, as it kind of floated gently uh, across right. across America. But then once it made it to uh, the eastern seaboard, we shot it down. The United States did. Um, and there's some cool videos of that available uh, on the interwebs for anyone interested. Yeah, pretty close to here, actually. And, yeah. and it was uh, folks from Hampton Roads, evidently, that went out and kind of got it, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And it was uh, like uh, Myrtle Beach, right? Was mm-hmm. that like South Carolina? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, thereabouts, they they uh, they knocked it into the ocean. And so um, now we're in the process of, of collecting debris from that balloon and kind of analyzing it. And in the meantime, uh, China... Uh, so it first said, as this thing was overflying uh, America and it kind of became public, they said, well, you know, this is a meteorological research balloon as mm-hmm. uh, g- gathering weather data, as one does. Um, mm-hmm. And and it went off course. The, the intent was not to send it across America. It was, you know, just doing some other data gathering mission. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a little bit of an apologetic uh, first statement from from China, right? <laughs> right. Eh, you know, awkward. Our weather balloon went astray. I mean, I right. Like, I apologize for that. You know, these weather balloons. Who who's hasn't really? I mean, everybody has weather balloons. They're always getting out of the fence and going. Uh, They're balloons. They're balloons. Can't control them. You can't control these balloons. Then after the U.S. shot down their weather balloon, uh, what they call a weather balloon, they were maybe less apologetic about it then, and uh, you know, expressed. Maybe some minor anger that this had happened, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. this doesn't isn't in keeping with uh, standard international practice of how you would treat a, uh, a weather balloon that went across your country. <laughs> we, we tend to not shoot down weather balloons, even when they go astray. So I think there are some interesting angles to this story that, you know, maybe we can maybe we can talk a little bit about. I mean, what's your what's your take on the on the weather balloon saga? First of all, do you think that this is a does this matter in international relations in some ways? Is this just all like political posturing? Or is there some there there when it comes to the 
the Chinese spy balloon? It's a good question, Jeff. Uh, my, I have two, I have two hot takes. Okay. So my first hot take is basically that in the international system among the, among the great powers, Everybody is spying on everybody pretty much all the time, right? So we know, for example, that the U.S. does a lot of reconnaissance missions in the South uh, China Sea, and this this irritates the Chinese. They they look at our planes flying around. They don't like it. We know that um, there has been spying going on, uh, you know, for centuries, literally, about, you know, our adversaries and even our allies. If you go on Google, and I encourage uh, our listeners to do this, Plug in sort of like random uh, great power spying on random great power, and you will find lots of examples of crisscrossing alliances and, and adversarial relationships and all that kind of stuff. So, for example, I was just looking earlier today about examples of China spying on Russia and Russia spying on China and China spying on the United States, the United States spying on, on China. So my, my one hot take is that uh, this has been going on for a very long time across the map and, and continues to go on. So I'm not I'm not in any way surprised to find out that China has been spying us. I, I want to ask you a question later, which is sort of what China uh, gets out of this. But I'm going to I'm going to hold off on that for a second. The question of whether this matters, I do think it matters um, for a couple of different reasons. And I and I think the way to understand this uh, for me anyway is is to think about kind of what this is an example of. Right. And what I think this is an example of is, is sort of states um, suffering from sort of like a little bit of humiliation when it becomes evident that something is happening uh, that we all know is happening, yet becomes public and they don't have a good reaction to. So, for for example, in 1960, in the, in the sort of heart of the, the Cold War, um, there was a U.S. spy plane, a U-2 plane, which are like these, these planes that fly – uh, really high up in the sky, and they can collect signals, intelligence, and stuff like that. A, a, a spy plane was shot down uh, by the Soviets. And the United States immediately, and they're the Eisenhower administration, issued a public denial that the aircraft was using for espionage and said it was, wait for it, a weather plane. They were they were conducting weather experiments, or they're trying to figure out, you know, it's like a, it's in the sky doing this and that. And Khrushchev leader of the Soviet Union, uh, very cleverly held on to information that he had, uh, including the pilot of the plane, and brought this out publicly uh, to humiliate the United States um, when when he wanted to use it. So he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't do this immediately, but he waited to sort of have the pilot come out and admit on television that he worked for the CIA. And the United States obviously had no choice at that point to say, yes, it was a spy plane. It wasn't a weather plane. And basically, the Eisenhower administration was humiliated, uh, you know, it looked bad for the United States and, and all that kind of stuff. But the reason that mattered was because this happened on May 1st in 1960. There was a summit that was supposed to take place in Paris two weeks later. And it was Khrushchev was going to be there. Eisenhower was going to be there. You know, I think some of the Western uh, powers uh, were also going to be there. And that summit had been set up because leading up into that that spy plane incident, relations were actually getting a little bit better. So Eisenhower and Khrushchev were both kind of talking a good ball game. There was discussion of sort of like, you know, reassurance and rapprochement. And it was a moment of sort of like positive uh, uh, feelings at, and during the Cold War, right? And this is before we get to the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that. So there's still this kind of moment where like, okay, maybe this is going to be, you know, a, a something where we can kind of have better better relations. But that U-2 incident basically sabotages the entire summit. They go, Eisenhower's all all pissed off, Khrushchev's all pissed off, they don't agree on anything, and it just becomes a, a, a fiasco. And not to mention, they also had this problem that the Soviets were holding on to the pilot of the plane. If you've seen the movie 
Bridge of Spies, by the way, this is uh, loosely based on that story with Tom Hanks and the negotiation of how to get this guy back. So I think it matters um, not so much because of the spying itself, because I think states realize that we're all kind of spying on each other all the time, basically, to get back to, to point one. But I think from a public relations perspective, from a from an optics perspective, it does have the potential to make things a little bit worse. You'll notice, by the way, that the minute this happened with the Chinese balloon, Blinken was under pressure not to take this trip that he was going to go on uh, previously scheduled to China, right? So it's very similar in parallel to what happened with the summit in nineteen in 1960. It's like there were there was a trip where presumably you're going to sort of pursue, you know, better relations and develop some understanding and diplomacy and all that kind of stuff. And this spy incident kind of derailed that, just like it derailed the summit in 1960. So I think to the extent it matters, it's sort of on the, on the, on the diplomatic side and can kind of sort of impede progress uh, of what, what it would otherwise be sort of like a beneficial thing that was that was happening. That's kind of my, my substantive hot take on on what happened. Let's back up a second and, and talk a little bit about what this balloon can do for China, for the United States. I, I think it's really cool. We should just take a moment to recognize how cool it is that this is like the week of balloons, that, that balloons has like, you know, finally come back into vogue after this is technology that, you know, in the civil war, we were flying uh, spy balloons up to help artillery targeting, right? Like this is, this is an old technology that's finally having its, it's a resurgent moment. So I think that's great. And we should like all recognize how cool it is for the balloons. Cause they've been, they've been overshadowed, you know, for quite some time by, by satellites and then by, then by drones and then by, and by other assets that have, I would say like far greater capabilities than balloons, which just kind of float there. Um, but I think it's cool. I think it's cool that balloons are back. Um, and actually, I think it's I think it's cool that balloons are back, but I, it, it raises that question that I that I, I, I raised a second ago, which is like, what is what is China doing? Like, why? Why are you using <laughs> if you you just said yourself, OK, we have satellites, we have drones, you know, we have human intelligence, we have good old spies, you know, you would think in the sort of like cornucopia of of things that are available for states to use, particularly a state that's sophisticated like China. A balloon would probably provide relatively limited usefulness, and the, the the downside of a balloon is precisely because while it can be controlled, you know, to some degree, they they can go off course, and they can. I mean, everything can kind of go off course. It's true, like drones can go off course too. But like, you know, you would think that with a balloon, you're sort of giving up a little bit of the control. So I would imagine like the downside risk on the balloon is actually kind of high, and it's not clear to me what it gives them over the other options that they have on the, on the, on the table. So, so Jeff, what, why a balloon? Why use a balloon? What are they doing? Yeah. I, so my bottom line is that I don't think the balloon gives them a lot of additional capability. So I like in that, I think we agree, but there is, there is some area where you might think, Oh, it'd be cool to have a fleet of spy balloons too, as long as not instead of the satellites, right? Not instead of the drones, but if you already have those things, why not add some balloons to the mix? There is some benefit to them. Let me just say, though, first about the, like, the going off course thing. Like, we, we should recognize that these are not, like, the balloons that, like, my kids let go of accidentally at the fair and they, like, float up into space, right? So the balloon we're talking about here does have some ability to control where it goes by moving itself up and down, right? So mm. this is actually a pretty cool, if you care about this stuff and if you Google this, this is a pretty cool area of... uh of technology where we're basically so Google uh, several years back had some uh, plan to bring Wi-Fi to areas where people can get Internet. 
Um, and their plan was to to release these balloons and develop some te- some technology, which I think is you know available to those who who want it. Um, where basically there's software on running on the computer on the balloon that calculates where above and below it the wind patterns go are in a particular direction, and then it can control the balloon can go up and down, right? And so the balloon kind of moves itself up and down such that it can capitalize on those different wind currents to take it where it's intending to go. So the the kind of uh, you know machine learning technology that's behind that is actually I think fairly advanced, and, and you can actually sort of plot a course with these balloons. Um, in a way that you wouldn't have been able to during the the Civil War when we were using these things. So, is your sense, Jeff, that they 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 launched this balloon, and once it's launched, it's it's on its own, right? The computer is it's it's been programmed to do certain places, you know, go certain places, things like that, and it's more or less kind of like doing that on its own. Or is your sense that there's a a human being back in China somewhere that's looking at where the balloon is and is making active decisions about like where to send it? Like, do you do you have a sense of of what's happening at the level of like control on a day to day basis? I, I don't I don't know, but I would guess that there is uh, some ability to control the balloon remotely. That that the that the balloon is not like completely autonomous, and it's and it's like you put it up and then you leave it alone, and because the balloon has to be able to communicate, right? Because it's uh, the point well, of the balloon I, is to like gather pick up the stuff, right? gather information, right? So um, so it's got to be able to communicate that way. So you might as well have some ability to control it as well. But the, it's it's very. It's not hard to imagine the balloon going off course. I just wanted to kind of clarify that. Like the balloon does have some ability to control itself. And apparently amongst the debris that the United States has collected from this item, uh, once it was shot down, are some propellers. So that the balloon may also have had some limited ability, at least, to uh, control its trajectory that way by by moving um, by moving itself under its own power. And it apparently right. had some solar uh, power available. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not just helpless out there. And there may be the ability to respond to signals, but that doesn't change the fact that it may have mistakenly transited the United States. And we should we should talk about that. I would like to get to that in a minute. We talk about, like, why is China doing this? Right. But right. in terms of the capability that the balloon gives China, it seems clear that the balloon had like an electro optical capability, like the ability to take pictures. Right. So um uh, that it had some kind of signals intelligence capability. That's what the reporting suggests. Signals intelligence is like the intercepting of communications. So it could be radio signals or cell phone signals or, or what have you. And you, you might say, well, can't they already do that? I mean, there are Chinese spy satellites. There are there's the potential for drones, although those are maybe even more kind of annoying to the United States. Mm-hmm. Or, or uh, they're, they're a little confrontational. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More they're they're like more confrontational. Yeah. Um, if, if you see like a drone overflying your your military yeah. installation, that is much more alarming than the balloon that's 60,000 uh, feet up. So, you know, you can imagine the balloon kind of filling, filling a role there. The, the problem is that satellite communications intercepts is limited in some ways. I don't want to like overstate this. I don't think the balloon provides like some huge new capability, but it is certainly possible that a balloon would be able to intercept uh, types of communications that are very difficult for satellites to intercept. Mm -hmm. There may be other ways to intercept those communications, including ground-based, like put something in a truck and drive it through Montana instead of flying over Montana. You might be able to do it that way. But things like cell phone signals are, uh, depending on how they're routed, uh, can be difficult to intercept from space. And so you might need something a little closer to the ground. So you can imagine there are there are things like that. The the big benefit of a balloon over most satellites is the um, uh, loiter time. That means how long can the balloon stay over a target that it's looking at? And uh, satellites 
you know, they, they keep moving that because they're in orbit. That's how they, that's how it works. Right. For in general, they, they keep moving drones and balloons have the ability to kind of sit there for a long time over the same place. And, um, for that reason, if you're at certain kinds of intelligence collection, you may want that kind of a capability and satellites might not do that for you. So there's reason, I think, to have balloons in the toolkit of ways you might spy on an adversary. Um, so it's not crazy that, that China has these balloons, but it is a little uh, weird, right, that, that China's like <laughs> sending the balloon out over for like this, this grand journey over America, right? Because like that's sure to piss us off, right? That's just like a, a very kind of escalatory kind of thing to do. And so then I think we should ask the question, like, was this an intentional move, mm -hmm. right? right? So right. one piece of evidence here, China might believe that the, these balloons are very difficult to detect. Um, and I think that's not unreasonable. So coming out around this, this balloon story is information that this isn't the first time a Chinese mm -hmm. balloon has transited America. And that, in fact, there's a fleet of these things and they're all over the place and they've been sighted over over Japan and over Taiwan and over um, South America recently. And so it could be that China's just flying these things everywhere and counting on the fact that they're actually quite difficult to detect uh, because they're uh, they have like a little radar profile. It's like not easy to see them um, in, unless you kind of know, already know where to look. It happens that this one I think was spotted by like commercial uh, aircraft or something oh, like that. Is that right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, maybe that didn't quite work out here, but you could at least uh, tell a story that maybe China thinks that they're not going to be caught doing this. And then that's, so that's one reason to do it. Right. So like if you got a fleet of balloons that collect stuff and you think you can get away with it, well, maybe you send them all out, gather some information and you figure like the risk of detection is fairly low. Even if it's detected, probably no one will say anything about it because it's a little awkward and embarrassing. And so maybe we can get away with this. We can test out this capability in case we need it in a time of conflict. And maybe there's some specific intelligence that China thinks it needs um, during, over the, over the path that this, this balloon was going. Now, the Biden administration has said that their assessment was that this balloon did not provide China with anything it couldn't get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not clear mm -hmm. exactly how they know that, right. Um, or whether they know that for sure. So one of the things that, that the U S was doing as the balloon was flying over America was, you know, getting these close up shots of what's on the balloon and trying to understand what technology is there. And so from the United States perspective, once they see the balloon is there, there is a strong incentive not to shoot it down, to try to learn more about it. Because like the fact is whatever they learn in this trip, like we're not at war with them right now, right? Like we're, there's no, there's no real imperative to like make sure this balloon doesn't see something secret, right? It's, it's more like, this is a great opportunity for the United States to learn about a Chinese capability since we detected it early, we could get a lot of eyes on it in various ways. Um, and then ultimately we can shoot it down and, and collect the debris and try to understand it that way. So this turned into a big intelligence win for the United States. That I'm sure China is quite unhappy about. And I think that runs counter to the kind of political pundit narrative of this, this, which is like, this is a big embarrassment for Joe Biden. And you, you're like this, these senators making these comments, like I would have shot it down, you know, but even before it got to Alaska, I would have shot it down over stupid. Montana. Like every senator, yeah. as it goes across America, is like, I, I at my shotgun, <laughs> I was ready. I was going to take it out. But the right. fact is, like, you see something like this. This is a goal. This is brilliant. This is the, yeah. the best thing to happen to our intelligence on these balloons. And one of the things I, that uh, apparently was collected is who is supplying, like, the materials that are on this balloon, which is mm. really useful to know, like, like, who are the main suppliers to 
you know, Chinese military enterprises like this, and including whether there were Western suppliers of some of the components that are on this on this balloon, because that really helps us kind of tighten export controls and make sure that we understand what's going on, and maybe also gives us a pathway to infiltrate those um, those kinds of uh, assets in the future, right? If we know that here are some component suppliers to this effort, then we can maybe focus our intelligence collection on those component suppliers and better understand what China is up to. So the intelligence benefit for the United States of seeing this thing early and being able to track it and then look at the debris, I think is really significant. Right. And I was surprised that the Biden administration originally didn't make that argument. So when everybody's on you know, Fox News talking about how like they would have shot it down, I think what you said is makes perfect sense. Like we want to we want to keep it alive because we want to be able to see what's what's in it and how it works. And so that was a I think they finally kind of got that messaging, but it took a, it took a little bit of time to figure out like why you know the Biden administration is sort of speaking one voice about why they waited so long to do it. In addition to if you shoot it down over Montana, you might you know people on the ground could get hurt or or infrastructure get hurt. Nobody lives in Montana. I don't think there's any real. That's true. Problem. Farm farmland. I I think it's not surprising that they wouldn't make that argument. The the intelligence collection mm-hmm. argument is one that you you rarely hear uh, policymakers make, and that and that's because it's like the kind of thing you don't want to you don't want to admit to or talk about or draw attention to. Um, so I I that doesn't really surprise me. But I I I think uh, that has to have been part of the calculus for, um, you know, maximizing, given that we don't want to kill anyone with a falling balloon, let's let's maximize the benefit we get from this and, and collect everything we can um, and make sure we shoot it down in a place we can collect the debris. I was also a little surprised that they shot it down. I mean, I, I've seen movies where you like you send a, a fighter jet like up next to it and you sort of like, you know, more more gracefully like figure out ways to like capture it or something like that. I was a little disappointed that they did it in the sort of like old school method because that has costs, right? Because it's going to things will presumably break on impact and, and, and debris and stuff like that is probably less useful than if they could like have it intact. I was just surprised I couldn't figure out some way to to bring it down in one piece. Oh yeah, no. This would have been the perfect chance to deploy the the space laser, or, or yeah, uh, you know, exactly. Like, like, like where's some, that technology? Some secret technology, or the the balloon net that we've developed at significant taxpayer expense, right? You know, they actually read it, one one article I was looking at about this did, did say that like the Pentagon had explored using like nets or hooks. Yes, to, to catch I, I wanted to see a hook. <laughs> yeah, I that's think. what I wanted. I, I wanted to see a hook or a net or something. Or, or that would have made for a great video. Great video, as they try to like get their hook around the around the board. Or, or like a Navy SEAL like hop onto it and like you know start <laughs> with the, the 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 fire to make it go up and down. I think that would be like capturing and then landing it gracefully in the. Oh man, there's so many efforts. So I was just a little disappointed. Yeah, no, that. that that is disappointing. It would have been fun to. To try yeah. to try something new, you know, I saw on Twitter there was a conversation about uh, directed energy weapons, and isn't this like mm-hmm. the perfect test case for for a, 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 like one of these new um, laser weapons or directed energy weapons that are designed to kind of like not blow stuff up, right? But like to more precisely focus your your targeting. The answer to that is like now that the whole world is watching what we're doing with the balloon, now is right. not the time to deploy our super secret weapon that we didn't we haven't announced so. So it seems like, okay, so so we have this sort of like, it was unintentional uh, for China to have done this, in which case it was a, a mistake, it was a blunder, they, they tech, tech reasons or some human reasons, somehow this got out of control, and they never meant for it to, to come over here. The intentional argument would be they were trying to, they thought potentially that this was undetectable, and they thought this was their, a, a chance to gather, um, you know, 
cell phone conversations or metadata or whatever the case is using these these uh, this balloon. Maybe they've done this before and, and it didn't get detected. Or they thought it didn't get detected. And so they figured we can continue again. It is intriguing. I mean, it, it's it leads to this uh, sort of question of what they you know, what China was getting at. And will we ever really be able to figure that out? Um, and it might be that some of the technology on the on the balloon will will be insightful in that regard. We can maybe figure out what their intention was, but right. I mean, well, there's a third option too, though, right? So one option is unintentional. One yeah. is didn't think they were going to get caught. But the third option is didn't didn't care if they got didn't caught care. or like figured it was a way to it, it, it's a, it's it was intentional to be seen by right. by they the wanted United us States. to see it right. right. And and then in that case, you know, then it's a signal that right that mm-hmm. we're sending a message. And so um, that's, a, I think, an interesting question. If this is an intentional provocation, then the, the question is, what is try, China trying to accomplish uh, with, with that kind of a maneuver? I mean, do you think that's a possibility? I, I definitely think it's a possibility, but I also think it's a strange signal. Like, it's not, it's not obvious to me what, the, <laughs> what, what message the United States is supposed to, to read from that other than some type of vague message that we, China, have this technology. We want you to know that we have this technology. It uh, doesn't mean we're necessarily going to uh, do anything all that interesting with this technology, but we we care. We would just very much like you to know that we have it, which in some ways, I guess you could view as a, some type of signal of maybe resolve or some type of signal of, of at least capability, not really intention per se, but they just want to let us know, like, look, this is another reason not to mess with us. Right. Uh, we have some cool technology that may, maybe you have and maybe you don't. And if you don't have it, that that should scare you, and we would like that. Or they're telling us we know what you're doing in Montana, and you can't get away with that. That's right, right. And what you're doing in Montana is just yeah. And like yeah. I don't know what we're doing in Montana, but China does. So you know, maybe yeah. maybe this is like this is like a shot across the bow. This is like I know what you did last summer, right? This is like a a way. No to one like, listening to this has seen that movie. I know, but it's like putting the fear into great movie though. You know, okay, well, the secret thing that we were doing in Montana that this balloon was over. Well, now we know that China knows, and so we should maybe like not do that anymore. I mean, I don't know. This is, that's a good, that's a very good possibility. I mean, if it was over, it's pure speculation, right? We don't know, but if it was over Nevada, I would say they were looking into the UFO incidents. Sure, you know that Area Fifty One. Well, all but that. it turns out the UFO incidents are probably balloons. Maybe some of them, not yeah. the Tic Tac. The Tic Tac moves too quickly for the for balloons, I think. Well, and then there so was. Can I just uh, say, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to one other element to this that we haven't brought up yet that I that I do think is important. I mean, we've been sort of, this is a weird conversation because on the one hand, it's it's farcical in the sense we're talking about a balloon. But on the other hand, we're talking about like high level spying about uh, potentially nuclear secrets and things that might make a real big difference if it, if it push comes to shove, we do end up with some type of conflict with, with China. I think the, the fact that um, balloons and drones uh, and satellites for that matter um, don't have this human component, I think, is actually uh, fairly important. So the, the difference between, I think, what's happening now and what we saw during the Cold War, to go, and not to bring everybody back to the 1960s, but just, just for a second, you know, in 1962, the, the U-2 plane, the spy plane, is what figured out that there were missiles that the Soviets had deployed in Cuba, right? This is kind of what kicks off the Cuban Missile Crisis is we, we get these pictures from the spy plane that there's these missiles here. Two weeks later, the U.S. is also doing reconnaissance missions up there to, to get better uh, intel, and the Soviets shoot down a U-2 plane. And there's a moment where John F. Kennedy, who's the president uh, at that point, his Joint Chiefs and, and advisors are saying, "They just the Soviets just shot at us. They took the first shot. We need to respond 
And we need to respond by bombing the, the military installations in Cuba. In other words, they wanted to start essentially World War III in bombing these nuclear um, installments. John F. Kennedy, to his credit, first of all, didn't trust a lot of these people because of the Bay of Pigs fiasco because they, they got that wrong. But also to his credit, thought to himself, I find it unlikely that Khrushchev was behind the intentional action of shooting down this plane. I don't think he was. And it turns out he actually wasn't. And if John F. Kennedy had made a different assessment, though, and listened to, to this, his military advisor saying, the Soviets just shot down a, a plane. They killed one of our people. We need to respond. We could have very well been in nuclear war. So I think the lack of a human flying these things, I think the lack of a human taking being captured as a POW or or uh, dying in a in a potential incident is very important because I do think that becomes much more escalatory than a balloon or a drone. And I agree with you all. Drones are a little bit more provocative than balloons. But one thing that makes me feel a little bit safer uh, in these incidents is that we don't have that kind of human component, which I think does have the potential to to have things spiral out of control quickly. But that's a, that's a really important point because of the two countries, the United States is the one with a number of assets out there collecting information that are manned and that are at risk if China decides this is a tit for tat kind of thing. So the fact that the U.S. shoots down this unmanned balloon uh, off of the United States you know, has raised at least the possibility that China could decide, well, and it said something in its statement once the once the balloon was shot down, something like we we maintain the the right to respond or something along those lines. Right. Um, and so there's at least the possibility that China could decide to to shoot down a, a U.S. reconnaissance flight and the U.S. Uh, operates reconnaissance aircraft all over the world in international airspace, mind you, like not over countries mm -hmm. and or at least that we'll, we'll admit to. But, you know, China could shoot down a manned aircraft over uh, international airspace and say, hey, this was over China, right? Like, and and how do how do you argue that, right? I mean, we would protest, we would be angry, um, but will we risk a, a shooting war over it? Eh, probably not. And so, so there's there's the U.S. has more at risk if it comes to a let's start taking out intelligence assets kind of a game between these two countries. Right, and and you know, it also doesn't take much for these things to kind of, of spiral, right? So remember back in 2001, the, the Bush administration, there was those, the, the incident where the spy plane, there was a collision, right? That's right. And, that, and, and so this is a situation where you have, you know, the U.S. conducting reconnaissance uh, work, not over China, but like over the ocean and stuff, but close. And there was a, a, a mistake, there was a, a, an accident, there was this collision, and it created not really a standoff, but it created this like very tense uh, few days where it wasn't clear how the Bush administration was going to respond to this. It wasn't clear how the, the, the China administration was going to respond to it. And that was scary. That was a moment where there was like all this uncertainty. And it was just because you, we were doing these, these, both sides were sort of like engaged in activities, and there was an accident. And it's like, no one really intended this to get that heated. But because there was this human element involved, it did get very, very heated, right? And so that might be one area also where, you know, the reliance on things that don't, the unmanned aircraft or the sort of automatic autonomous type of aircraft provides, you know, a little bit of an ability to, to when things do go wrong, scale it down a little bit and prevent, you know, potential, potential conflict. It also brings to mind some of the potential conflicts that exist when it comes to intelligence assets in space, where, mm -hmm. you know, the U.S. and China both operate satellites uh, for intelligence purposes. And uh, China 
well, and the U.S., also have a, a, an anti-satellite capability, right? The ability to to shoot down satellites, um, and China has tested that capability. When you test an anti-satellite capability, you get um, a lot of debris and space that can cause problems for everybody's satellites. And so there's been a lot of attention paid to kind of creating rules of the road or some, for some form of arms control that would apply to space assets, to things like satellites and anti-satellite weapons. And uh, the discussion over the balloon has kind of brought this up again, right? Because it's in this category of things where if countries just start shooting stuff down left and right, things can get out of control very quickly and escalate very quickly. And so it might be helpful to have some rules of the road here. And there are informal rules like, you know, I'm not going to shoot down a satellite that is over America, right? Right. We do not extend like American, like U.S. airspace to space. But, you know, if it's a balloon that's 60,000 feet up, well, then, then it's fair game because it's over the United States. Um, so right. we, we have these kind of informal rules. Um, and some of those rules are actually codified in outer space treaty. I shouldn't call them purely informal. Um, but uh, this is the kind of thing where having a mechanism to deconflict and to make sure that militaries can speak to other militaries when, they, when there's a crisis can stop escalation where escalation wasn't intended, where a balloon really did fly off course, which remains a, a strong possibility here, right? That this wasn't an intentional provocation on the part of China. This was just, you know, balloons. They they, they do their own thing, right? Um, and so you, it may just have been accidental and it causes this whole international incident, but, you know, maybe it was just a mistake. So having the ability to deconflict and and prevent these things from escalating seems important. Yeah. And I mean, I think this, this, you know, we've talked about this before on this podcast, but this gets to the the point about hotlines and communication and just making sure that that there is, you know, after the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States and Soviet Union said, look, uh, we need better communication. We need the ability to pick up a phone, a hotline and talk to you. And, and we don't want to have, you know, any type of, of escalatory thing based on misperception. If we intend to go to war, let's intend to go to war, but let's not have this because of some kind of mistake. And so, we don't know at the moment, you know, how much communication is going on between the U.S. and China, and particularly at the military to military level. One might hope that uh, what hasn't been reported, but what happened was that somebody got on a phone and talked to somebody in Beijing and said, what is going on with this, this balloon? And they got an answer that they could believe. That would be the ideal situation, in which case the United States could say, OK, well, thank you know, we, we now know, thankfully, that this isn't, you know, some type of nefarious action. Like it is a spy balloon. That's, you know, we, we expect this type of thing to happen. We know this has been going on. China knows this has been going on. That, I think, would be like sort of the ideal case, that they were sort of honest behind the scenes and that they're backstage. And then the, the front stage, they have to do all this, you know, baloney about a weather balloon and all that. I doubt that that's happening, but that that's the sort of ideal case to get to, right? And this is why I think communication um, of, of the type of military to military is so important. It's also the reason, by the way, that I, I didn't like it that Blinken canceled his trip. I mean, it seems to me like, okay, fine, you want to send a signal to China, like we're upset by your balloon, that's fine. But at the end of the day, in the in the sort of system that we live in, where we do, a lot of people see China as the, the sort of competitor uh, of note, and China might see the United States as the, the sort of main competitor, and conflict might be possible down the road, seems to me like that is when communication is most important, right? And so I was disappointed that Blinken did that. I would have encouraged him to go make the trip, try to understand what's going on. Uh, I think that would have been a better approach. But my, my point more generally is that, as you allude to, the ability to pick up a phone uh, and talk to the military commanders on the other side when something like this happens to me is is critical. Lincoln's decision to cancel the trip, to me, seems much more driven by U.S. domestic politics than, yeah, by, than by like some calculus that like we need to send a message to China, right? I, I, I feel yeah. like 
this is an, uh, another area where the balloon might have an outsized impact, right? Far beyond its its ability to collect information about the United States or add to China's body of information that it already had. You know, it, it inflames domestic politics because China is such a uh, kind of hot button issue right now um, and has become a very kind of partisan uh, thing. And so, you know, this is was a chance for predominantly Republican politicians, not all, but uh, Republican politicians to criticize the Biden administration uh, for being soft on China, I guess, is, is the argument, because you, you let this balloon fly over, fly over our great nation. And, uh, you know, so for Blinken to then go to China, uh, it amidst that conversation, I think, draws even more heat to the administration. So this strikes me as the kind of thing where the administration is just saying, look, we got to let this calm down. And calm down, I, I don't expect that uh, China takes Blinken's cancellation of the trip as sort of this stinging rebuke, more like everybody understands that on, in this political environment, it would be very difficult for that trip to, to happen and to be successful. And so, you know, we need to take a breath and let this kind of die down and not be a big issue. And then, you know, I suspect there'll be another visit scheduled or if there isn't already um, to, mm -hmm. to, to make sure that these kinds of meetings continue because from the calculus outside of domestic politics, from the calculus of like, you know, the foreign policy establishment, like you're right. Like what the balloon does is it makes these kinds of conversations even more important. Um, right. But it's just, can we, can we have them uh, while everyone's uh, talking on CNN and Fox news? Yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I have one last uh, question for you. So we, we discussed um, on the last episode, I think it was whether or not COVID uh, had done anything sort of long-term, uh, uh, with respect to like great power rivalry. And we both kind of agreed that, you know, this was all happening before COVID and stuff like that. Um, when, when things like this happen though, and these like moments of um, sort of international intrigue occur, and it's not just this incident. We think about, you know, Pelosi's visit and that was highly uh, dramatic and the Chinese didn't like that. You know, are you, are you any more willing to sort of connect dots to um, uh a change in relations in the last couple of years, potentially due to COVID, but maybe not uh, with China? Or do you see this as just another sort of example of something happening that in the, in the scheme of things probably doesn't say a whole lot about the U.S.-China relationship as a as a whole, uh, and rather it's just sort of like an unfortunate incident that the, the, the relationship will get over uh, probably sooner rather than later? Well, I do think the U.S.-China relationship has gotten worse over the last several years. Uh, and I think part of that is due to China's policy, right? That that I, I don't think this is a the president woke up one morning and said, you know, China don't don't like them. I, I mean, I think this is because uh, Xi's policies are just uh, you know much more aggressive. China has kind of changed its stance toward the world in a way that is not in accordance with you know U.S. U.S. interests, and so we more and more find ourselves. Um, at odds with China in pretty much every conceivable uh, uh, interaction. And it's everything from the South China Sea, where there have been simmering tensions for a long time, to, oh, now China is going to be a military supplier to Russia and a war on Ukraine, you know, and and, and so, and, and treatment of, of Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and uh, you know, human rights violations and all of this. This was always a problem, right? But I feel like over the last 10 years, mm -hmm. seven to 10 years, uh, that that relations have kind of appreciably worsened, and U.S. policy now reflects that, right? And with policies, particularly around economic growth and and 
semiconductor production and all of this stuff that are really aimed at making it more difficult for China. Um, and we have policies along these lines and China sees these policies and that doesn't thrill China. And so you get this kind of spiral of, of the countries, you know, kind of hunkering down against each other more and more we're, we're at odds. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I think that's, we should expect that to continue. I don't really point to COVID though, as the, as the driver of that. I think that that's a trend that, that also predates COVID. Um, and for a time COVID was distracting enough that we had a, a moment there, at least, where it, the first order of business was dealing with this other thing, this pandemic, and not dealing with the potential long-term threat uh, from China. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Marcus. I think this was a, an interesting conversation. I'm glad we got to have some some balloon talk. Uh, I felt like that that was something that was missing in our, our podcast um, topics. Yeah, we've covered a lot of topics over the years, and balloons haven't yet been one of them. And so this was great to be able to check that that box off. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. Um, if you want to leave a comment or a question or just point out where Marcus was wrong. Many, many. Please go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk. Or you can just check out the show notes uh, that Professor Capital will type up diligently after this episode. Yeah, no, and, and always always check the show notes. We'll have, a, we'll have some uh, links in there to something interesting, including if you'd like right. to to get a lovely Valentine's gift for your, for your, for your loved ones. Um, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Go Eagles. See, I never liked balloons. I, I really don't like balloons for one specific reason, that when my kids were little in particular, but even still now, I find balloons very scary. Like the those little like party balloons, because they're like, it's very easy to like suck them in, I think, by mistake, and like, choke on them. And I don't know. And also, I'm very bad at blowing up balloons. Like, I just, I don't have the like cheek power. Like, my cheeks always like... The lung capacity. Yeah. Is that what it is? I'm a marathon runner. I don't think that's the issue. I think my <laughs> cheeks, I, I think I have like weak cheeks. Interesting. Like, I can't, they, they hurt when I go... They, they like hurt when I stretch them out. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the balloons are a big problem in my family because uh, we will blow them up. The kids will fight over them. Um, they will play with them and then they will pop and then someone oh. will cry. Yeah. Um, and and it's nothing worse than a pop. Like the sound of a popping balloon. Yeah. It's just terrible. And it's like, you know, at that point that like your fun is over, right? Like, like the, the popping like signals the end of the fun. And, yeah. and since what would I, I think the best response is like, I immediately blow up another balloon. And so there's never any, any downside to the popping balloon, but we're, we're always functioning. We're living life like one balloon at a time over here. You know, it's like, there's one balloon in the house. It pops. That's the last balloon for months. Like there's not going to be another balloon replacement. And so there's a lot of weight put on that. How are you with balloon animals? Well, like, do I make them? Yes. No, no, I do not. Is that, okay. is that, is that one of your skills? I, it's in my toolbox. Of, it's it's in my skill set. I, I'm capable of creating a couple things, like a dog. Everybody can do a dog. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't think I can. I would expect you to be able to do a dog. What is the movie? Is it old school or oh, Wedding Crashers, where he's at the wedding and he does a, a <laughs> to, to scale of Wrigley Park, yeah, <laughs> Wrigley Field. That is, uh, I I wish to attain that level. If I can just blow the balloons up, I have to have somebody else blow them up for me, and then I can make the. Well, do you you got to get one of those like uh, balloon blower things like that? They yeah, use the I wish. To take it to the next level, I, I would have to do that. Yeah. You should travel everywhere you go with, like, an inside pocket of your coat that has, like, tons of those balloons in the blower. And so anytime you yes. meet a child, you just, like, would you like a – not creepy. It's not creepy at all. It's a little creepy. Would you like me to make a unicorn? And then you just start – The other thing I, I need to start carrying around with me is a Rubik's Cube. 
I find the Rubik's cubes are great. Like there's there's something you know, it's like you're you're bored and you're just like hanging out, like just having something to do with your fingers. So like between the balloon animals and the Rubik's cube, I think you have figured out sort of boredom in in like sort of weird social settings where you just have nothing to do. All right. Do you have a big menu planned? I don't. I don't have a big menu. I've done no Super Bowl planning. It did not purchase a new larger TV, although I feel like every year this is like my chance to do it, and I didn't do it. it. Is. it um, is. How about you? Do you have like a whole thing you're doing? Well, wings? no, I was hoping you could you could help me with, well, I'm going to do wings, but, you know, I feel like cooking on this show is sort of like one of our main kind of topics, and you gave me the mayonnaise uh, turkey for Thanksgiving, and I was hoping that you would give me a like nice Super Bowl Kenji inspired how to do. Now, I did watch Kenji's video on how to do baked wings. Um, and I probably will follow that. Yeah, a lot uh, less messy. I, the, the frying it is too, it's too much. Oh, I, and I don't have like the proper, it, yeah. it just gets everywhere. It's gross. Yeah. And ba- to, be, to be perfectly blunt, I find that the baked ones taste almost as good. You know what I mean? Like, I think the homemade baked ones are comparable to like a, a mediocre fried wing in a restaurant. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I'm cool with that. The one problem I have in this town is that it's hard to get like wings of decent size. Like if you go to Fresh Market or Harris Teeter or something like that, the wings are never like that big. They're just like these little sort of puny things. And I'm always looking for like the big plump ones uh, for Super Bowl Sunday, and I can never find them. You got to go to Costco, get one of those 10-pound bags of uh, <laughs> wings. You'll, you'll be fine. We're, we're not actually a big uh, – I don't, I'm not really a big wing guy. And so the house, mm. we don't do a lot of wings here. I do okay. do, like, we'll do, uh, if we're going to have a, a event or something where we want to be, like, sitting in front of the TV and, like, eating at the same time, what I will do is I will make, uh, like, oven-baked, like, rolls. Like, I'll take, uh, I'll take like, tortillas and um, I will, like, wrap, uh, like, chicken and cheese in them and then um, put them in the oven, like like brush them with oil and put them on the, in the oven at like 500 degrees for like mm-hmm. 10 minutes or seven minutes and they get all crispy. And then I'll like cut them into pieces. It's almost like a, like a taquito kind of appetizer. Yeah. That um, sounds like a taquito. That yeah, sounds exactly. delicious. Yeah. 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 So, so that's, I do that uh, on occasion as my, like, you know, watching the big game kind of item. Hmm. That's my, that's my uh, suggestion for today. Maybe I'll try. Yeah. We do We normally do like wings, nachos, you know, the, the normal kind of suspects, but like, my wife doesn't like any of that stuff. So then I end up kind of making something for her and she doesn't eat it. And she doesn't watch the game. You know, it's, it's a whole. Yeah. Well, thing. I have to make an individual meal for every member of my family. So it's <laughs> because my kid, none of my kids, there's no overlap in what my kids will eat. It's like, right. yeah. Um, anyway, well, this is good material for the outro. We're always looking for content 